Hello, everybody. I'm your host, Sam Red. Welcome to Red Carpet Talk, where I talk about entertainment with guests on a weekly basis. Today's episode centers around the question of what are the best movies of the 2010s. Yes, I am very aware that this topic involves a loaded question. There is no clear, single, universal way to define, quote-unquote, the best. Instead, we have many forms of measurements that could be used. One could theoretically look at significance, level of accessibility, originality, rewatchability, among many other factors that I'm forgetting at the moment. The one key takeaway that I want people to understand is that all of these factors that I just stated are subjective. Ultimately, every individual has differing relationships with every movie that exists. Due to this, there is no objectively correct answer to what are the best movies of the 2010s. Despite that, I look forward to speaking to my guest and former classmate, Eric Summers, on what we consider to be some of our personal favorites. So before this episode, Eric and I came up with a list of our favorite movies released in the 2010s, which we will now discuss together. Eric, let's start with you. What is your first choice? Um, My first choice is Wind River. And I was actually surprised at how few of my friends and people I've talked to have seen this movie. So I think it's an interesting discussion topic. Yeah, it's one of those movies I feel like not a lot of people know about. It's like a favorite of the people who've seen it. It's like not underrated. It's just underwatched, I would say. So what do you Um, like about that movie? You know, I've actually, it's interesting because I've only seen it once. And I consider it to be one of my favorite movies because I think that repeat watches doesn't necessarily mean anything to how much you like or dislike a movie. Um, And I think that the reason I haven't rewatched it is partially because it's not on Netflix and it hasn't been for a while, but also wonder, I'm kind of like afraid that if I watch it again, it'll like lose some of that magic from the first time and I'll start kind of criticizing it more and see the little flaws. And I don't really, I just want to have like that, that perfect experience of the first time always, you know, like locked in my brain, if that makes any sense. I, I totally get that. Um, so it's like certain movies, I feel like when they're dealing with such like serious material or like yeah. issues, it's kind of like you don't want to experience that again, if that makes any sense. What I assume to be, because it's filmed on an actual Native American reservation, the Wind River Reservation in Wyoming, um a very accurate depiction of what life on a reservation is like that's interesting um i'm curious if uh do you have anything to say about the actors in the film yeah i was surprised that i think jeremy renner is one of like the most underrated actors of our time i know i just said the wind rubber isn't underrated but i feel like he's got a lot of range hidden under that like diet daniel craig persona um he was in he was in not not mostly just in appearance because he doesn't really kind of do the same stuff as daniel craig but you know he's in avengers um he's in uh mission impossible i think yeah. four and was he in five yeah he was in five i was watching him and elizabeth olsen kind of interact and how he was like kind of the outsider like the it's weird he wasn't really an outsider he was like the native outsider so he was always like around there and i was just kind of like I didn't feel like he was the main character. I actually kind of felt like the movie didn't really have one, which was interesting, but I think that he played the role really well. My one complaint with not necessarily just his role, but the movie is I remember they kind of like established his relationship with his son 
at the beginning-ish and then never really did anything at the end. Jeremy Renner, I think, is a pretty excellent actor and I hope he gets more work in the future because I feel like he could expand a lot beyond his, um, his like, action roles. Yeah, him and Elizabeth Olsen are two people in the uh, MCU that I think are underrated actors um, for, like, doing smaller films, like Wind River. Um, Anything else you want to add on Wind River? Yeah, um, I just think that the... I don't want to spoil it for any listeners, but the the scene... The the one tense scene... It's it's hard not to talk about, like, spoilers when it comes to, like, black movies are so great, you know? Um, the one scene in like the, I, I believe it was a trailer park where it's kind of like a Mexican standoff with Elizabeth, Elizabeth Olsen and Jeremy Renner. And I believe the chief police officer of the native tribe are all like standing around. And I remember the camera angles in that scene being very interesting. The director, I think he directed it, Taylor Sheridan. I know he wrote it at least. Um, I think you're, yeah, I think he did direct it. I think he did too. I think that was his directorial debut, actually. Did he do Hell um, or High Water? He did Hell or High Water, and he also wrote Sicario, both of them. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Was, he did do, yes. I remember that now. Yeah, no, I think he's a very talented writer, and I really hope he gets more work in the future, which I feel like he probably will, um, because I think all of those movies are not really cult classics, but not a lot of complaints can be levied against them besides, you know, just like the... Like, I think of all the complaints you could say for those movies, I don't think you could criticize them for not being well-written. How are High Water, um, since we brought it up, um, it technically connects to, like, my honorable mentions. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, for choosing, like, my favorite movies of the 2010s, I had a really tough time narrowing down to, like, yeah. a small group. So mm-hmm. I kind of, like, did, like, t- top 10s. But even then, I was like, I don't have time to talk about, like, 10 movies. Right. So I narrowed it down further. So I have like a few honorable mentions. Like I put, I ma- I thought of like different categories in my head of like movies that I like. And then I chose like a movie that represents that category. So mm-hmm. like, yeah. for example, um, when I was younger, I really liked um, watching like the Oscars and I would attend like Oscar movie marathons. And okay, one of cool. my favorite years was 2016 which is like when la la land was against moonlight and mm-hmm. how or high water i think was another nominee that year and yeah manchester by the sea and the hidden figures and like lion and like Hacksaw ridge but my favorite of that group was la la land even though moonlight ended up winning yeah um, i can get into that in a whole nother episode why specifically but all of those movies were great honestly some other movies that are honorable mentions i'll try to go through like really quickly before i go into my first option oh yeah no worries spider-man into the spider-verse which yep. in my opinion pretty much the perfect animated movie but continue. yeah i literally <laughs> ranted about it in another podcast episode so that's why i didn't choose it for this one but that's like my comic book entry i mean there's yeah. other great stuff too don't get, like mcu in general has a ton of great yeah, movies for sure. and like there's like wonder woman and joker and stuff um another category i thought of was like queer cinema and like my my honorable mention for that is the favorite which i loved the first time i watched it in theaters and it 
blew my mind. And then, of course, even though I'm not, like, well-versed in international cinema or, like, documentary films, I wanted to get at least, like, one entry for those. So, like, Parasite for international cinema. Cold War. It was, um, I think it was Polish, if I'm correct. Oh, I think I did. Okay, I think I heard about that. I didn't see and it. And then documentaries, Free Solo, and then... I need to, I need to watch that. It's been on my list forever. But They Shall Not Grow Old and Won't You Be My Neighbor I also really liked. And then finally, like, just, like, miscellaneous Baby Driver. I love that movie. (laughs) I need, I know, I need to watch that one, too. I've heard so many good things and I've never really, yeah, uh, never really, never taken a look at it. If you're a fan of, like, Scott Pilgrim, like, Edgar Wright's style. Okay, yeah, right. Probably, like, Baby Driver. I mean, it's not at all, like scott pilgrim but like if you're just a fan of his style i think you'll definitely appreciate baby driver but um okay so now i'll get into my first choice now that i went through my honorable mentions one of my favorite genres of like movies is like science fiction so Mm -hmm. i was like i had to choose at least like one science fiction movie and i mean there was a lot of good stuff like we literally have like mad max fury road and like inception do you consider a Fury Road science fiction? Barely, okay. barely though. It barely counts. Yeah, yeah, no, I kind of get like I've always like I mean I feel like Star Wars is broadly considered to be sci-fi, but definitely more in the realm of fantasy. Yeah, but I agree. I think you can make I think you can make an argument for both. So I definitely see where you're coming from about Fury Road. While most people, when it comes to Denis Villeneuve, the director, prefer mm-hmm. Arrival more. My favorite, my personal favorite, was Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Yep. I'm a huge fan of the original Blade Runner, mm-hmm. and me, this sequel, hard to live up to the original Blade Runner, and yet Denis Villeneuve managed to pull that off. I think he understood what made the original one a masterpiece. Yep. He perfectly, this is not a movie for everybody, a lot of people. Oh, definitely, and if I recall, it it didn't do very well at the box office, too, did it? No, it it did not. His movies never do good at the box office, like which is so unfortunate. I'm really hoping, I'm really hoping Dune breaks that mold. Yeah, um, maybe, but I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, Blade Runner 2049. It's like, it's not a movie for everyone. Again, some people might think it's pretentious or too simple. But if you love the original Blade Runner. That movie, that movie is also very slow paced. So yeah. I appreciated this, the pacing of this movie, even though it was very slow and it's over two hours. Um, the score is great. I like how it incorporates. Yes, the score the, is so good. Yeah, it incorporates stuff from like the original, but then it also adds new things. Yeah, and just overall, the overall aesthetic does that too. Um, the the cast is just great. This may be my favorite Ryan Gosling movie. This might be his best performance, since I feel like he gets typecast too often. Oh, definitely. That's kind of what I picked up on as well. As, like, the smart-ass but charming guy. Like, he, mm-hmm. he's that in La La Land. He's that in The Notebook. He's that in Crazy Stupid Love. Right. And this is not a movie where, he, where that's the case at all. His character is probably, like, for me, the character that anchors the movie the most. I mean, there's also so many great performances in this movie. Whether it's like a smaller role, like Dave Bautista, who's barely even in the movie, or like, oh my god, who else? Harrison Ford, this is like one of the only movies in 
that I can think of in recent memory where he actually like cares and you can tell he cares. No, I, yeah, I think I was thinking about that too. I've only, I think I've only seen that twice, but I remember thinking, I think that it was the first movie since I would say return of the Jedi that I saw him in that he really had, he put his heart into it. And I think star Wars, he just really loves playing Han Solo. So I think that it's kind of a given like any star Wars movie you put him into he does well because it's just like, yeah. I mean, not really t- kind of typecast, I guess, because Indiana Jones and Han Solo are essentially the same person. I think that, yeah, like he loves that role so much. So I think it's kind of hard for him to like ever detach from it. But yeah, Blade Runner also it's, really stuck out to me is he was into it and he like felt the character for sure. It's hard not to talk about this character without talking about the original. I consider Rick Deckard in the original and Roy Batty in the original to be two of my favorite all-time movie characters. Mm-hmm. And while he's in this movie less, which I appreciate, actually, weirdly enough, I'm glad that you don't really get to see him until the second half of the movie, which I think is perfect, mm-hmm. and that the movie is more centered on Ryan Gosling. Right. Because to me, Ryan Gosling is really what makes this movie work. You really feel for his character. So the original Blade Runner is about the question of, like, the philosophical question of what makes a human a human. Denis Villeneuve expands on that so well by adding like interesting ideas that the first movie doesn't mention um i have a couple notes on blade runner as well i think that sean young's recreation in that movie was completely out of the uncanny valley i think that oh my god yes if you didn't know that she wasn't in it you like if you saw 2049 before the original blade runner you wouldn't suspect a thing you wouldn't look at her and say that's a cgi character and i think i think she looked really really good she did i I didn't, like, I knew it was CGI because I was familiar with the source material and obviously she doesn't look exactly the way she does, you know, 40 years ago. I think it was very close to blurring the lines between CGI and reality. Because if I remember correctly, they also used a composite of her and CGI, right? Um, I think you might be right. I I don't think it was motion capture of, like, another person. I think it was actually Sean Young because she can still capture, you know, the like the essence of the character despite being you know older i think that they kind of used her as the base and then just kind of shifted the appearance based on the original movie to look more like the original movie which i think is very interesting and clever use of cgi which kind of brings me to my next point i think that denis kind of deals in not exclusively but i think he is very good at adapting in the case of dune for example or creating in the case of Arrival, and to a slightly lesser extent, Blade Runner, high sci-fi, I think that he really has that nailed down, where it's more cerebral, it's more mature, and then I had a couple of honorable mentions I forgot to mention earlier. Yeah, go for One it. of them is Grand Budapest Hotel, which mm, I actually, I do love, but I actually, maybe controversial, enjoy Moonrise Kingdom more. I think Moonrise Kingdom is like the perfect little bubble romance story. And it has everything that makes Wes Anderson great. And the soundtrack is amazing. The acting is very good, especially for child actors. Um, I just, I love that movie. I actually might, I haven't watched Moonrise Kingdom in a while, but part of why I like Wes Anderson is not just the aesthetic, but he also does like music really well, which is why 
uh, Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou is probably like my favorite Wes Anderson movie, even though most mm-hmm. people don't like that one as much because it has such a good soundtrack. Moonrise Kingdom also has a really good soundtrack, and I'm glad you brought that up. Even though I haven't watched it in a while, I remember watching that in theaters and also watching the trailer for the first time in theaters. They had the French song, uh, C'est la temps de l'amour, I think is the yeah. name of it, by Francois yeah, Hardy. I, I such yeah. a great soundtrack but that was like my introduction to like uh wes anderson that movie yeah, and too. i remember mm-hmm. that trailer so i'm glad you brought that. i initially thought of grand budapest as being one of like my my um my top four or whatever but i kind of moved it down to honorable mention and then as i was thinking about that i was like you know i actually liked moonrise kingdom a little better and i've seen it more times and it's just like there's something like grand budapest is great it's a little i think it's a little funnier and, you know, Willem Dafoe is excellent. Adrian Brody is excellent. But Moonrise Kingdom, I think, especially Wes Anderson doing a child acting project. Because um, I'm of the opinion that child acting is very difficult to pull off. Because you either have, because you have people who can't write children, like George Lucas, for example. And then you also have kids who can't act. <laughs> so if those two things come together, then it just kind of wrecks everything. But um, as you know, in class, we watched the Florida project, which I don't know if you remember me talking about this in class, I said, it's either the greatest acting of all time, or it's no acting at all. And these people are just being themselves. I think that in terms of Moonrise Kingdom, Wes Anderson did really well. And I think that I don't think those two kids have had much more acting jobs since then. And I'm really curious Um... to see what they're up to now. Something else I want to add, Moonrise Kingdom being my introduction to Wes Anderson, that might have also been my introduction to, like, indie cinema as well. Um, yeah, yeah, okay. I think it definitely presents itself as an indie film more than his other movies do. Especially because you had, you know, like, fewer big actors. Like, you had, you know, his typical fare of Tilda Swinton, uh, Bill Murray, Edward Norton. But then you also had these two, like, I think at the time, pretty much completely unknown child actors. But, like, I'm looking at the cast, cast list right now, and I really don't see many, like, AAA actors. I think most of that's because they were all kids. Like, a lot of the thing, like, revolved around, like, a Boy Scout group. The lesser known actors in that way, and I think it really paid off. It's funny that you brought up Florida Project, because that's actually one of my movies. That's <laughs> Perfect one segue. of the best movies of the 2010s. When I think about the 2010s, something that stands out to me about this decade is the rise of like A24 as a studio. Mm-hmm. And they have so many good movies like The Farewell. I loved Ex Machina. I loved Room with Brie Larson. Not to be mistaken for Tommy Wiseau's The Room. Right. Very um, important distinction to make. Yes. Since so many people think I'm talking about that movie instead when I say that oh I God, love Tommy Wiseau in an A24 movie. movie. And then The Lobster was another A24 movie I really loved. But Florida Project, to me, is probably my favorite. Going into Florida Project, um, Sean Baker is just a very underrated director. Um, I recently watched Tangerine, which is also a really good movie. Um, by him but like it's not as polished as um, Florida Project is like you said I think what makes it so spectacular is it's some of the best acting but also non-acting and that's because it felt like a documentary yes it's very much um, I think Sean Baker is very much paying homage to like um not to get like too pretentious but like he's basically paying homage to like 
um, like Italian neorealism. And the whole aesthetic with like Italian neorealism is like capturing the beauty of like everyday life. And like they they tend to use like ha- like cast like amateur a- amateur actors or like people that have never been in like a film before usually, and they tend to have like a gritty aesthetic, kind of like the way this movie did. What else? They tend to do on location shooting as well, so it like pays homage to that, but yet it also does like its own thing. Yeah, which I think is really cool. But I definitely agree. And I think that's why it has, like you said, like that documentary feel. It feels like you're watching, like you're a fly on the wall and you're just watching everyday life unfold. And, um, but yeah, you really get attached to those two, watching these two characters. And then, and that's part of what makes the events that unfold so impactful um, once you, it reaches the end of the movie. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think like, I, in in a very different way than other movies i think florida project is one of the hardest movies i've like to watch that i've seen because you know you have like i'm not a huge horror fan but like midsummer was kind of tough to stomach at some points and like um i'm trying to think of like joker i found a little bit like i mean joker i think is just a generally disturbing movie it is um but (laughs) Florida Project was hard to watch in a different way because like the emotion was so raw and like it wasn't you know like the somewhat exaggerated descent into madness of Joker or the like art horror gore and graphic imagery of Midsummer, which also one of my honorable mentions is very beautifully shot um but it was like it was very real in that it was taking a situation that for a kid is like the end of the world and really like siding with the kid and not the mom who i think kind of up until then was the main character it just it was like it was tough to watch like towards the end i was like this is like not disturbing but it's like it's very impactful the way that color is like used in this movie adds to the idea that you're basically seeing everything from like Mooney's perspective that basically Mm -hmm. you're seeing the world from a child's point of view and I think that's what makes this movie so beautiful is that throughout the whole movie she's this punk who's kind of like ignorant of the world around her and by the end of the movie her bubble that gets burst you know and she Mm -hmm. becomes more aware of the issues around her and I think that's part of what makes the ending so impactful. I think that, yeah, it's also like, I, I kind of saw like the Purple Motel is just being like, she sees the idealized version of of that place. So like, even though it's, I'm sure in real life run down and like not super well kept and it's dirty. I think that she, you know, she sees it as home. And I think that home in, a, in the eyes of a kid is like the safe place. A good place where the food is where the bed is so i think that she sees like uh, a rose-colored depiction of that motel yeah you just said it perfectly the next one on my list is true grit which interestingly i generally do not like westerns i don't know why i just don't love the the like cowboy riding into town and like the bounty hunter and like all that stuff like old john wayne movies like even the Magnificent Seven, like the new one with Chris Pratt and uh, Denzel Washington. Yeah, I just, I don't love 
like the atmosphere. I don't love how it's all just kind of one cliche. And I apologize if you're a Western fan. <laughs> um, but hey, like True Grit, I think is, although it's not my favorite movie, I think it's just an objectively fantastic movie. It does so much right. It has so much going for it. The acting is great. The action is good. They finally did it justice from the book because I believe the John Wayne version back in the 60s. So it focused on Rooster as like the, the cowboy hero and not on the girl who's really the main character of the story as per Charles Portis's book. So, I mean, this is going to be a fairly short entry of mine, but I think that like, I don't like Westerns, but I love True Grit. And I asked my friend, I was like, He's really into Westerns. And I'd asked him, I was like, hey, have you seen True Grit? And he's like, yeah, I've seen True Grit. I love that movie. I'm like, yeah, it's weird. I just, I don't like Westerns. Can you recommend me some? And he's like, he said Buster Scruggs, which I thought was okay. No, it's interesting since I'm also not a fan of the Western genre. And I wasn't a fan of um, Ballad of Buster Scruggs. It didn't do it for me. I don't know. So I'm... But I've never actually seen True Grit. But now you make you me want should. to watch it. Because I'm also not a fan of Western. So I'm like, okay, maybe I might actually like this movie. Also, I'm just a huge Haley Steinfeld fan. I think yeah, she's, she's great. very underrated as mm-hmm. an actress. Especially in comedy. She's really good. Yeah, no, I highly encourage you to watch True Grit. It's like, it's a fairly simple story. And it definitely is like, I mean, it is a cowboy story. But it's told so well, and it does avoid a lot of cliches. And Josh Brolin is in it. Uh, Jeff Bridges, Matt Damon, Haley Steinfeld. Like the cast is incredible. The cinematography is great. Coen Brothers can't go wrong. Cool. I really like that entry. I'm definitely gonna check that out at some point. Um, I, again, since you got me sold, since I'm not a Western fan, but the fact <laughs> that you're not either, and I'm yeah, like, I, I might yeah. actually like this. It has so much, like, so much going for it, and it subverts a lot of the cliches that I think I just don't love in Westerns. This is completely different from, um, my next entry is completely different from Blade Runner 2049 and Florida Project. Um, Going into the realm of, like, animated movies, um, there was a lot of great animated movies in the 2010s. Um, like Disney wise, you have like Zootopia and you have like Frozen and then yes. like non-Disney Kubo and the Two Strings and then um, Klaus, which I think is a very underrated movie. That's become one of my new favorite Christmas movies. When it comes to like animation, like Pixar is the master of animation mm-hmm. as a studio. Thank you, Steve Jobs. Yeah, they excel in animation, Pixar. So I was like, I have to choose a Pixar movie. And I feel like most people, when it comes to like the best Pixar movie, the 2010s would usually say Inside Out. I really liked Inside Out, but Coco, just for some reason, that movie just knows how to pull at your heartstrings. And there's some twists that they throw. Some of them, some people might think is predictable. Some of them I don't think are predictable but i don't want to spoil them for anyone but this movie it just even though i've seen it more than once it kills me it just yeah more than any other pixar movie in regards to like how much emotion it brings uh the song remember me is very underrated i think as a movie song throughout the entire movie i like how you hear it multiple times but yet you see it differently every single time you hear it which I think is really clever. Right. So like, there are other movies 
that I can think of that have like a musical motif but like I just I think it's interesting because when you think of like the idea of like a motif you usually think of it as like something specific when you're reading a book you think of like a certain like piece of imagery or like a certain idea that pops out like multiple times throughout the story but I just something that's unique to the medium of film that like Coco does so well is that like music that you can hear like a certain like string of notes you know and that makes you think of like a certain idea I guess or like a theme which I think yeah. is really cool that's and that's like something that's unique to the medium of film it's a quick entry on my list for yours Go for is it. Mission Impossible Fallout I just, I have a soft spot for those movies. And I think they're one of the very few action franchises that have just consistently gotten better with the exception of two. We can just kind of ignore that. Uh, I think Fallout is for me, basically the perfect action movie because it has everything that you want from an action movie. It has Tom Cruise doing insane stunts that will probably kill him one day. It has relatively minimal use of CGI. A lot of it's practical in the aforementioned ridiculous stunts. Tom Cruise is, you know, he plays Ethan Ethan Hunt just fine. Um, Henry Cavill is really good in it. Alec Baldwin is really good. Like, the acting is generally very solid. The set pieces are incredible. The pacing is really good. There's never a boring moment, but it's also not, like, they don't just cram action scenes into your face without yeah. any context or explanation. And... But- um, Regarding cast, um, I mean, obviously you br- you're bringing back like other people that we've seen from past movies. But regarding like new people, um, the people that stand out is Henry Cavill, who mm-hmm. is a big who plays a big role in this film, and then also Vanessa Kirby. This was my introduction. She's excellent too. To her, yeah. she's really good in here. She is, yeah. A lot of it comes from Tom Cruise's just willingness to do the most insane stunts possible, like. I think I read somewhere that he did that base jump like once a day for two weeks or something like that, which is just unheard of. And then, you know, he climbed the Burj Khalifa. He was on wires, but still. And he hung out the side of that plane. He learned how to fly a helicopter, learned how to spiral it out of control, and also learned how to bring it back into control so that he could do that in the movie without CGI. He's, it's, I think it all just comes together in a very like satisfying package and i think that's for whatever reason like ghost protocol a little bit better can't really explain why but i think fallout is like probably one of the best action movies of our generation i think it kind of like it went more into realism partially because it is real like the stuff he does is real (laughs) but even him um, getting hurt is real oh yeah like i have you seen the (laughs) scene where he just like breaks his ankle and i think they kept the take in the movie Yes. He's like jumping from rooftop. Was so brutal. Oh, it was man. so brutal. That scene watching it in theaters, since I know he actually got hurt in real life. Yeah. So when I saw it, I was like, oh, the whole theater was like, oh, I yeah. won. I, I'm glad you brought up Mission Impossible, since I feel like when people think of like the best movies, they usually tend to go like more like less spectacle driven movies sometimes, mm-hmm. Some yep, pe- depending definitely. on who you talk to. So, but to me, just because a movie has spectacle doesn't mean it's a bad movie. Like, Oh, no, for can, sure. Yeah. It could still be very well executed. And I think Mission Impossible, all of those movies, including Fallout, is, um, is proof of that. 
But yeah, I think people definitely do discount that stuff in favor of the more like pretentious, like intellectual movies, like the indie movies. And like, that's not to say that they're bad, of course, but yeah. people discount like the the action thrillers and the blockbusters just because they appeal to a wide audience. And I think that's not really fair. I agree. Um, my next movie, complete opposite of Mission Impossible. <laughs> but um, since I'm someone who grew up in the 2010s in the sense of like I was a teenager and um, during the 2010s I was like I have to choose at least like one coming of age movie and there was a lot of like really solid coming of age movies and like A24 had some good ones like Lady Bird in eighth grade and then like Boyhood was really good and Sing Street is very underrated one of my favorite movie soundtracks of all time. But, like, my absolute favorite slowly growing a following is Booksmart. I just I have not to- seen Booksmart. I totally vibed with that movie. I was just, like, right place, right time for me. I just, like, totally related to the characters in this movie. Um, the main characters are, like, Molly and Amy. And, Mo- and Amy is this awkward... She's not, like, totally confident in herself. Um, she's, um, she's, like, into girls and stuff. And I was, like, so I, like, relate to that character. But then I also related to Molly because Molly was just like this this ter- determined, stubborn person who just always has to like excel at everything. And she is like the epitome of like someone who like is all work, no play. And that's basically what the whole movie is about. It's like how the two of them didn't party at all during high school and how like all the people that they specifically molly more so than amy have been like judging like the popular people um how they've been like been able to balance both school and having a social life and they're like well why didn't we do that and then so it's them like trying like the night before graduation them trying to like make up for all the partying that they didn't get to do in like one night oh it's also like part of that like subgenre of like friends like in like high school like trying to go to like a party you know like I feel like that's like a very big subgenre like super bad mm-hmm. for example is the other movie that this movie constantly gets compared to and it's super annoying but I get why it gets compared to super bad because um <laughs> Jonah Hill is the is the the half-brother of the actress who plays Molly in this film. Really? Okay. Yes. Guys that I know are like, this movie is just a bad, lesser version of Superbad. I've seen Superbad. I actually, this is why, the reason I'm going to give for why I think this movie is better than other movies like Superbad in that subgenre of high school movies is this movie is not just a comedy and specifically once you get to the third act to the film I think it does a good job of subverting the tropes of high school movies technically this is a spoiler but in the beginning of the movie this you see certain characters and you're like in in your head you're thinking oh this person's probably the typical stereotypical mean girl and oh this person is probably just like a promiscuous like girl you know and, like, this guy, he's just, like, a douchebag. And, like, you have all these assumptions that you're making in your head. And you find out that they're actually, like, really nice people. And they're not who you would expect them to be. And that the main character is actually the most 
judgmental of actors. So while she's judging like all the characters for being just like mean or whatever, she's actually the most problematic, which I think is really clever that this movie does this. And it made me totally reflect on my own high school experience completely differently. So I think it's a comedy and this movie makes me always laugh. Watched it multiple times like at this point and it's just super funny and it's one of my favorite soundtracks but also is really heartfelt does a good job at pulling off the emotional moments at the end of the movie and does also does a really good job of subverting tropes and it's also like one of the only high school movies I can think of that actually has like style to it since a lot of times all a lot of high school movies look the same and they're like shot the same you know there's definitely a distinct style there's a scene where they're like doing drugs it goes from like live action to like animation it's so funny a lot of people that have seen this movie they'll talk about um the pool scene that is a scene that i think has a lot of style to it and to me i think this movie could have easily been a cliche and very Mm -hmm. stupid but i think olivia wilde um, in her directorial debut, does a really good job of like br- bringing a fresh take to a very overdone genre. Oh, also the cast is just stellar. You have like, it's a lot of like younger people that like most people before this movie like were not really aware of, including myself. Mm-hmm. But there's also like a couple like comedic actors, like um, Jason Sudeikis is in here. I Bill love Forte him. is in there. Um, Lisa Kudrow is in here and they're all great um, so yeah I definitely um, I highly recommend this movie it's not for everyone but like the people that it vibes with most of the time when I recommend it to people they usually like cool my fourth and final as you so accurately guessed at the beginning is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood I have seen that movie I believe seven times now and I enjoy it every single time and what's funny is the first time I saw it, I came out of the theater and I thought, I don't get it. I just, I didn't know what to think. I was like, what did I just watch? And am I supposed to like it? What was it? And of course me being an action fan and Tarantino fan in general, I thought the last like 20 minutes was great, but I didn't really see the movie come together as like a whole picture until I started thinking about the scenes themselves. So I was coming out of the theater with my friend and we were both kind of like, what the hell was that? And then we started talking about it and I was like, oh yeah, that scene at the Spawn Ranch was really good. And he's like, yeah, that's true. And also I really liked the margarita scene. And I was like, yeah, that was funny. And we just kept going back and forth. And after a while I was like, you know, there were a lot of really good scenes in that movie. And I watched it again and I actually worked at the movie theater there at the time. So I got to see it for free all four times I watched it in theaters. I liked it more every single time. And I found something new every time. And I just appreciated the acting more every time. The soundtrack is kind of interspersed with the fake radio ads that he made for the movie. So it sounds like you're just listening to the radio in 1969 for an hour and a half. Because he has like the mug root beer ad and like the, I forget the sunscreen brand ad, but he just has all this stuff that makes it feel real and it makes the world that he creates feel very lived in. And even though, you know, it is an homage to just LA in the 1960s, 
he very much he had addressed all parts of it so he got the music right he got the attitudes right he got sharon tate right he got manson for his very short appearance right and then he also put his own little anti-history twist on it as we know he loves to do with inglorious bastards and um django i mean i've seen that movie. I, I just can't get enough of it and even while i was watching it i wasn't thinking oh man i want to live in california because i'm just like not a california person i guess but it's just it just feels so magical like he just captures la so well and even though i wasn't around in 1969 i can just feel that the movie just drips with that like spirit of the golden age of hollywood at the time that's an interesting entry um there's two main things i want to mention um the cast is just absolutely insane like the amount of oh, people it's... that are in this movie yeah, it's ridiculous. And um, but to me, the star I is Brad Pitt. I feel like he steals the show. I again, I think you said this of like the first time you watched it, you were kind of like, "What did I just watch?" type thing. I had a similar reaction to it, and but I, my one takeaway, I was like, Brad Pitt definitely made this movie, yeah, um, to- at least tolerable enough for me to watch since I didn't love it but I I like I like I appreciated it for like what it is and he definitely like stole the show for me and mm-hmm. like kept me like glued to the screen and then the second thing that you kind of touched on that I want to comment on real quick is Tarantino how he likes to he you called it him being anti-history the way I like to word it or describe it is like he I think likes to correct certain wrongs that have happened. Oh, absolutely. In history. That's kind of what I was. That's kind of what I was going for. And that's definitely well, yeah, what this movie does. He does this with *Inglorious Bastards*. Like he's correcting, like I guess you could say, like Hitler. Yeah, the Holocaust, basically. <laughs> and then Django, slavery, and then with this, it's interesting because instead of like regular history. He's, like, fixing certain things that happened with, like, film history, even though the Manson murders did actually happen, you know. But, yeah, I just think it's interesting that he – it's almost like it, like, bothers him so much to the point that he feels the need to correct it, which I find super fascinating. Like I also – one of the things that I noticed, I think, in my third or fourth watch was just, like, little bits of foreshadowing. And this first one I may have – I may have – it may be a bit of a reach – but when Charles Manson is walking away from Cielo Drive, like the house, like Sharon Tate's house, um, there's a song playing. And I don't remember exactly what the lyrics are, but it's something like, I can almost taste it, but I don't want to waste it. So it was like, oh, is this like the Charles Manson stuff? Is this like where it happens? But now we're going to save it for later. That one was a little bit of a stretch, I think, but that's what I like to kind of think of it as. But... My favorite little Easter egg in that movie is in the last like 25 minutes or so, right before all the, the events of the, the final scenes go down, it abruptly shifts to a television set. And on the television set, some announcer guy says, and now what I'm sure you've all been waiting for. And then it launches into the scene where the Mansons drive up to, or like the Manson family drives up to Cielo Drive. I think that was just kind of like a fun little like, well, here you go. And then it was also like a huge bait and switch because when I first saw that, like when I first saw the movie poster, I was like, oh, Tarantino made a movie about the Manson murders. Like, I thought that's what it was about. Because that's kind of like, 
Yeah, and that's kind of like how he marketed it. And being Tarantino and his like you know love for hyperviolence, almost cartoony hyperviolence, I was like, yeah, there's no way he's gonna like just avoid that. And he did for two hours and twenty minutes. I was kind of mad at first. I was like, I feel robbed. Like I, I came in here wanting to see Manson stuff, and then I was like, yeah, but like that's not really like. That was kind of not an afterthought, but that was the climax of the movie. He spent so long not even really setting it up. Like after like during the move up until the Manson scene, I feel like it wasn't really setting things up and that the last scene in Cielo Drive was almost kind of like an afterthought because although, you know, uh Cliff meets Rex and or yeah, Tex. Yeah, Tex, played by I think Tex. Austin Butler. Yes. Um he meets Tex, and he meets, you know, the Manson people at Spawn Ranch. It doesn't really, like, set anything up. There's just a handful of scenes there where they're talking about, like, oh, you'd love Charlie, and, like, that kind of thing. But I think that those were just, like, little, little like, references. Because the movie in and of itself is kind of just a compilation of references and events and, you know, just, like, a love letter to Hollywood. It doesn't really seem like it's building up to anything, because it kind of just says... These are the everyday lives of these characters in, you know, kind of like an idealized Hollywood. After watching it a few times, I was like, that's, I, I love that movie. And I can just put it on as background noise and just enjoy it all the time. And I'm also very excited for the book. I pre-ordered that book the second I saw the thread on Reddit. That's, I mean, I think this has been a very long, we've covered yeah. like all of our bases. Um, so thank you for joining us, Eric. Yeah, thanks for having me. Be sure to check out past and future Red Carpet Talk episodes where I chat with other guests that are just as good as Eric. You can listen to Red Carpet Talk in places such as Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. After listening, be sure to subscribe and review. You can also follow Red Carpet Talk social media accounts for exclusive updates. Both Instagram and Twitter are at Red Carpet Talk. Red is spelled with two Ds. Thank you for listening.